This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp uh, sword with, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his a robe, and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, with a loud, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your word that is, is so beautiful. It is so deep, so rich, so true. It is light that shines into a dark world. It, it directs our steps. It shows us the way uh, to be saved. And it reveals to us your perfect, holy character, which we love. And so, Lord, we pray now that the, the same Spirit who first authored these words would now come and be our teacher, that you uh, would show us what it means to live under these words, that they would be our hope, they would be our guide, they would be our knowledge and wisdom. And so, Lord, we open our hearts to you and, and pray that you would lead us to Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I imagine as you uh, came in this morning, you read the, the title of this sermon, which is uh, A Strategy for Cultural Change. And then I read the passage after that, and the passage is about this battlefield of people slaughtered and birds are eating the flesh off of them. You say, hmm, it's an interesting strategy for cultural change. What is that about? Well, as we go along, uh, you'll see that... Um, I don't take the images of, from this passage I just read literally, and I'm going to explain why as we go along. But before we dive into this, uh, this sermon and this passage, I, I want to address just one question from the outset about interpreting 
Revelation 19, a very important passage in the book of Revelation. And the question is this, is is this passage that I just read uh, the second coming of Jesus? So by the second coming, I mean every week we say together the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed says that we believe in Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And so when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, is, uh, is this passage describing that event? Well, I want to explain why I don't believe that to be the case. And the main reason is because what, becomes, what comes before this passage in Revelation and what comes after it. So if you've been with us, you know that we're in Revelation 19. Revelation 18 described the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D., and then the passage right after this is the description of the millennium. It's a very long period of time that ends with the final judgment when the second coming happens. And actually that kind of description that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, and then there's going to be a long period of time, which we're currently in. There's been a long period of time, and we're still in that long period of time. And then at the end of that long period of time, there will be the final judgment when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so, if this passage is not about the second coming, it means it's about something that happened between the fall of Jerusalem and the beginning of this thousand-year-long period of time. And so, what is it, is it describing? Well, I believe this passage is describing the mission of Jesus with his church after the destruction of Jerusalem. The Bible sees the generation of Jesus' life and the first generation of Christians as the hinge on which all of human history turns. And we are, are now at the point where Revelation begins this, to tell the story of what happens after that generation. And the answer is that Jesus, with his followers, go out to conquer the world. And so it may not seem like it, but this patch, passage is a description of how Jesus transforms cultures. And uh, we are uh, Jesus' partners in that work of cult cultural transformation. So it's important for us to understand how that transformation happens. And uh, so today, I'd like to answer this one question for us. How do we partner with Jesus in his work of cultural transformation? How do we partner with Jesus in his work of cultural transformation? I want to point out three answers to that question from this passage. Okay, first... We must let Jesus lead us with his word. Second, we must let Jesus strip us of our flesh. And third, we must let Jesus judge the world. Okay? Let Jesus lead us with his word, strip us of our flesh, and let Jesus judge the world. And I think there's really powerful insights. I really I love this passage, and I'm, I'm glad to get the chance to study it together. So, so three points this morning. The first is this is our partnership in, in, in Jesus' work of cultural transformation is we must let Jesus lead us with his word. If we want to see our culture transformed, we must let Jesus lead us with his word. And there are really two things to say in that statement. Okay, The first is that Jesus is leading us, particularly into war. Jesus is leading us into war. And the image of warfare is clear in this passage. You see that there in verse 11, how it says, Then I uh, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, 
and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So there's that image of warfare. And now the first thing to ask is, okay, well, who, there's this rider on a white horse. Who's the rider on the white horse? And, you know, there's not a lot of things in the book of Revelation that everyone agrees upon. And one thing that everyone agrees upon is that the rider on the white horse is Jesus. And uh, you can see that in the next couple verses. So, for example, in verse 12 there, it says, His eyes are like a flame of fire. So if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, Jesus' eyes have the flame of fire. And then it says, And on his head are many diadems. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's been collecting the crowns of many kings, and he's taking them for himself. And then it goes on, it says, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Of course, if you know the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John begins by saying that Jesus was the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. Jesus is the Word of God. And so the rider on the white horse in heaven is Christ himself. And so when it, me- uh, when it mentions next in verse 14, and it goes on, it says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. And so that word following is a key word in the New Testament, is the people who follow Jesus. Who are the people who follow Jesus? It's his disciples who follow him and obey what he does. And so the army of heaven are those who follow Jesus. And actually it says that they have these fine linens. And if you were here last week, we know that the fine linens were given to the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the church. So this is the church who is the army who is following her leader into battle. And so we are the army of heaven. Jesus is our leader. And we have to appreciate that this says that Jesus is leading us into war. Jesus is leading us into war. And so the first matter of a strategy for cultural transformation is we have to know that there's a war. And if you say, I don't like the thought of Jesus being at war, well, we have to, this passage clearly says that he's at war. And so we have to accept that that's where he's leading us. And uh, to be at war and to pretend like you're not at war, you're not going to be a very effective army. (laughs) But I will say this. This war is not a normal war. It is a spiritual war. Jesus doesn't fight with bombs and guns and tanks like most human wars. And this is really the second thing that this passage is saying is Jesus is leading us into war with his word. He's leading us into war with his word. And you see what it says there in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So there's Jesus on the white horse, and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth, which is strange. You say, wow, why, what does that mean? He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Well, this, uh, this sharp sword, it's not a literal sword that cuts people up. And we know that by looking at other passages of Scripture. You always have to do that in, refer, uh, in Revelation. Whenever something's not clear, you've got to say, is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about that that's more clear? And there is one example of that is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. This is what it says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Very beautiful passage about the Bible and its power to like, dissect the human soul and mind. And it is like a sword that cuts into human beings at a very deep level. 
And so Jesus defeats cultures by speaking the truth. And this passage is not about Jesus slaughtering people with machine guns. He is making war with his word, and we are supposed to follow, be following him into that war. So the first strategy of cultural renewal is simple, that we must follow Jesus by believing and obeying his word. And so we join in the battle when we're a community who studies the Bible, we talk about the Bible, we study it on our own, we study it in groups, we pray about the Bible, we debate the Bible so to make sure that we understand it right, we read the Bible to our children, train them to know the Bible, it's, it's in our minds, it's in our emotions, it's in our speech, it covers every part of our lives. And this is how Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is conquering the world. And you might say, Jesus is going to strike down nations with, the bo- with a book? I'll tell you, the kings of the world have always known how powerful this book is. Why do evil governments outlaw it? Why do they say we don't want our people even allowed to read this book? Because they know this book has the power to undo them. And they don't want their people reading this book. It is absolutely the most powerful force in human culture. And so if we want to see Jesus transform our culture, we must be a people of the word. But again, you know, some of you might hear that and say, so you're saying that the Bible is a weapon. It's a sword. And you say, you know, people get that way when they have the Bible and they're like, I have the truth and I feel powerful because I have the truth. And the other people, they don't have the truth. And I can, you know, I can stick it to them with the truth. And it gives this, this sense of I'm right and the world is wrong. And uh, it actually could feed people's pride to be given the Bible and said, this is the weapon with which you fight the world. Is that what we want? Well, um, I'll tell you that without a doubt, the Bible is powerful, but it is Jesus' sword and not ours. And part of the way that we remember that is that every week when we come together here, we believe that of first importance is that you and I need to fall under this sword ourselves. It's not just going out to cut the world. It's cutting us. And actually, Hebrews 4, that talks about that God's word is like a two-edged sword. He's talking to a church. And he's saying, you're the ones that need to be cut up with this word. And so, um, Jesus doesn't just turn his sword on the unbelieving world. He turns his sword on us. And so, that is the second strategy for cultural transformation. Okay, not only to let Jesus lead us into war with his word, but second is to let Jesus strip us of our flesh. If we want our culture to change, we must let Jesus strip us of our flesh. Now, you might hear this interpretation of this passage that I'm giving. You say, okay, that makes sense. Jesus is going out with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. It's words that he's speaking. It's God's word. But what about the bloody battlefield that this passage describes? I mean, it's some of the most vivid uh, pass. It's one of the most vivid uh, uh, passages in Revelation. You see what it says there in verse 17? Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And then it goes on and it talks about the beast, who we're going to talk about in the, in the third point, uh, who's going to be judged by Jesus. And then, but then the, fa- the passage finishes by saying in verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I just love that image. It's a battlefield littered with corpses. Jesus is walking through and the birds are coming and stripping them of their flesh. And you say, what is that talking about? And, uh, you know, we've already said that the sword that slaughtered these people is not a literal sword. And so I think that gives us reason to think it's not a literal battlefield. And so what is it? And I think the key to understand this passage is that repetition over and over of that word flesh. It's the Greek word sarx, which is a very important word in the New Testament. And the sarx, the flesh, is our sinful nature. It's our pride, our bitterness, our anger, our addictions, our pettiness, our greed, our lust. You know, uh, Galatians 5.19 describes the flesh this way. He said, uh, Apostle Paul says, Now the works of the flesh, that's the sarx, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I think that we all feel that encoded into the soft parts of our bodies are sinful desires that are dark and they're impulses that we can't get rid of. It's like they just come out of us and they control so much of our lives. And so what's happening in this passage is Jesus is stripping the flesh off of human beings. And the way that I reflect on what's happening in this passage is I think that there are times in our lives when the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves. There's just times where we are, are so deeply brought to a place of despair and weakness. And we just say, I, I can't be brought any lower. I, I'm so hopeless. I don't have any energy to go on. I have no hope. And, uh, and it feels like you've been splayed out on a battlefield with your guts opened. And you're lying there and you say, Lord, this, there's nothing left. I have no strength left. And you think at that moment the Lord is going to relent and he's going to say, okay, that's enough. And instead, he sends birds to start peeling the flesh off of you. And you maybe had that kind of experience where you've gotten to a point. You're like, this is the most I could possibly handle. And you thought this was my limit of how much I could handle. And the Lord's like, no, we're going to here. Or the birds are going to come also. And um, Jesus does this to people. And if you haven't experienced it, you will know it when you do. And this has happened to me, I think, a number of times in my life. Uh, the first time it happened to me, I was a teenager. And I, I've shared with some of you, when I, I, when I was a teenager, I, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. And I was a major problem for my, my parents. When I was 15, I dropped out of school. And I, I left home. And I was living on the street and living on friends' couches. And I was drunk and high every day. And I was stealing all my food and, and, and uh, beer. And I was just a major menace to anyone who knew me. And... I was living a life of the flesh. And uh, my parents were obviously uh, very distraught. And so one day I was kidnapped and I was 
put in a car. They, my parents had hired these people. And I was put in a car, and they drove me, these strangers drove me to southern Utah, where I went to, I was in an adolescent hospital for three weeks. And then I was put on a plane for the little island of western Samoa. And when I got there, we drove up into the jungle. And in the jungle of Samoa, there was this barbed wire fence and a compound with a bunch of teenage boys marching in circles and doing push-ups. And they're like, you're going to be here for at least a year. And I was there actually for a year and a half. And, I, you know, you imagine a year and a half when you're 16 years old is forever. And I was like, this is the worst. I'm at the lowest. And the Lord was like, no, you're not at the lowest yet. And so uh, one of my first nights in this compound, um, you know, in this place you sleep on the floor, and they keep the lights on to make sure that you don't leave or something. I don't know why. But the lights are on, and there's a security camera, and they say you're not allowed to open your eyes while you're sleeping. You have to have, keep your eyes closed. So I woke up at 2 in the morning with the lights on. I needed to use the restroom, and I, I didn't know if I was allowed to use the restroom. So I just went back to sleep and wet myself. 16-year-old <laughs> boy. You talk about how humiliating to wake up that way. And then I didn't know how to wash my clothes. So I put it on the line till it dried, and I wore it for the next two weeks because I didn't even know what to do. And then a couple days later, I forgot to tuck in my shirt. And they said, well, you're going to have to go to the dungeon because you forgot to tuck in your shirt. And so I spent several days in the dungeon. I, I was in the dungeon in Samoa, 16 years old. And I was, you know, 8 in the morning to 8 at night. And I thought, I'm splayed out. I'm in such despair. And then the Lord says, not enough. And so I was accused of cheating in the dungeon. And they, said, and they said, you can't speak. You can't defend yourself. It was wrongly accused. And so eight days in the dungeon. And I remember sitting there, not able to speak, tears pouring down my eyes. Like, what is going to happen to my life? Day five or six in the dungeon, I had the first sane thought I had had in years. I've been really selfish, and I got myself here. It's the turning point in my life. And what was happening was the Lord had splayed me out and he was stripping the flesh off of me until I was a pile of dry bones with nothing left. And when the Lord has a pile of dry bones, he breathes his spirit into it and new life is formed. And a few weeks later, I'd been an atheist to that point. Someone told me you should get a Bible and read it. And he said you should try praying. And that was the turning point in my whole life. That's what Jesus does to people. Jesus was stripping the flesh off of me. And many of you have stories of Jesus bringing you to the end of yourself. And it was only once you were a pile of dry bones that he began to change you. And I'll tell you something I love about this passage is that experience, you know, oh, I'm just like, I'm at the end of myself. It's not just something Jesus does with one person or maybe a few of us or maybe some people in the church. He is doing this on a massive scale. You think of all the billions of people on the planet, he is going to do a massive slaughter with his word. It is the only hope for humanity, is that the flesh of humanity needs to die and be stripped off. And I also love that it is all kinds of people that he's going to do that to. You see what it says in verse 18 there? It's a, it starts with the flesh of kings. And you might say, yeah, kings, they're, you know, they're rich and powerful and they need to have their, their pride stripped off of them. But it's not just the kings. In the end, it says, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You need to have your flesh stripped off of you. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or whatever ethnic group you come from. It doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated. If you're a human being, 
Your flesh needs to be stripped off of you. And for a culture to change, the fleshly character of individual human beings must be stripped from them. And that only happens through suffering and the piercing work of the living Word of God. And what this is saying is, do we need new politicians? Yes. Do we need new schools and new laws and new institutions? Do we need better morals in our society? Yes, we need all of that. But Jesus says as long as all these people are proud people of flesh, the culture will not change. A massive slaughtering by the word of God must happen, and it must begin with us at the household of God. Now I'll tell you, that's what happened in the early church. The Roman Empire, the culture into which Revelation was written, was a culture of flesh. War and sex and wealth and power were all of its priorities. And in the years that followed the fall of Jerusalem, Christianity basically remade the Roman world and conquered the Roman Empire. And so that leads to our final point. So how do we partner with Jesus? Well, first, in cultural transformation. First, we have to be a people of the Word. We have to be people who love the Word because that's the sword. We've got to talk about the Word. We've got to study the Word. We've got to believe the Word. We've got to, uh, you know, uh, obey the Word in every aspect of our life. And then we have to let Him strip us of our flesh. That's what He's going to do, and it has to begin with us. But lastly, we have to let Jesus judge the world. We have to let Jesus judge the world. And what I mean by that is, you know, my sense is that there are basically three different approaches that Christians take to cultural transformation. And, um, and this may be an oversimplification, but this is, this is the way that I've heard of it. So on the one hand, Christians can take the culture war approach. And the culture war approach basically says you know, America is a, was a Christian nation and we need to take back the institutions in America that have historically been ours. You know, Christians started all the colleges and, you know, Christians invented public education and we need to bring Christianity back into these institutions that were ours and, and that they were lost. And so the culture war is more of a kind of a confrontation with the world, a conflict with the world. And then there's another approach to... Um, cultural transformation. You might call it the cultural engagement approach. And this is an approach that says that Christians should be salt and light in the world. And so we should get on the boards of the social services here in town, and we should kind of work alongside Christians and non-Christians and be a faithful presence in businesses, in, in schools, and be salt and light there. And we're kind of like affecting change from within. And so it's, it's a less conflict, it's a more cooperative kind of approach to influencing change. And then lastly, there's one other approach that uh, Rod Dreher is the author, has called the Benedict Option. And the reason he calls it the Benedict Option is that St. Benedict was a Christian in the 16th century who basically saw all the decadence of the Roman Empire and said, you know what, this society is collapsing. And he goes into kind of the wilderness and he says, I'm going to start these communities of Christians who are going to live under a common rule. And basically, the Roman Empire, they're going to do their thing, and we're just going to do our thing. And it turned out that the Benedictine mono, uh, monasteries, over the next thousand years, really like laid the foundation of, of Western culture in Europe, of learning, of uh, medicine, of uh, even like agriculture and all kinds of par parts of, uh, of, of culture. 
And so you have basically these three approaches. Do you fight? Do you kind of work with? Or do you say, hey, let's just do our own thing? And what should we do in our culture? And I think that all three of these have biblical warrant. You know, you can find scriptures, and I think some of us, you know, temperamentally are going to lean towards different ones. I temperamentally lean towards the third one, the Benedict option, that instead of trying to transform a culture, we need to make the church an alternate culture, an alternate city, and then invite the world to come into it. You know, the monasteries, a big part of the monasteries was hospitality. Is when travelers came, they came and they got food, they got a bed. With the monasteries, they were welcoming the world in. And, and you might wonder, well, do you see that approach in this passage? Well, the way I, I see it, if you look at verse 19 there, where it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was seating, uh, sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, we've talked about earlier in Revelation that this beast in Revelation is the Roman Empire, and it's specifically the Roman Empire under the administration of Nero, the emperor Nero. And Nero was the first emperor to systematically persecute Christians. Uh, Tacitus, who's a first century Roman historian, said that Nero murdered an immense multitude of Christians. And, you know, he would give them over to be torn apart by dogs, and he would crucify them in his garden, and they'd have a dinner party, and he'd light them on fire like they were torches to kind of light up his... I mean, the guy was absolutely nuts. And so, uh, but immediately after Nero's death in 68... AD, the Roman Empire was thrown into a massive turmoil. And what's happening in this passage is Jesus is saying, is I'm going to undo the beast. Jesus is going to judge the beast. And that's exactly what happened. Between the years of 68 and 69 AD, just a few years after Revelation was written, there were five different Roman emperors. Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and Vespasian. Two committed suicide, two were murdered. Now, I just want you to imagine the United States, if we had a two-year period where we had five different presidents, two of them committed suicide, and two of them were murdered, what would you think? You'd be like, do we even have a country? This thing has fallen apart. Uh, you know, this train is off the, the rails. That is exactly what happened in the Roman Empire in this time. This is all Jesus' judgment on the beast. And Christians didn't have to do that. Jesus was judging them. And in fact, what, this passage, what does this passage say that the church does do in the mission? Jesus is doing all the judging, and he's the one riding out on the horse. What's left for us? The only thing this passage says about, for the church to do is to follow Jesus, which means obey what he said. And uh, Rodney Stark's a, a well-known uh, historian. He was at University of Washington for 40 years, a historian of Christianity and religion. And he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, which talks about how did the church, which is a very marginal, small group of Jesus followers in the first century, by, by the fourth century had basically transformed the Roman culture, culture and, and the Roman emperor was now a Christian. How did that happen? And, uh, and what Rodney Stark says, what, there was all these things about the church's society and life that drew people in, you know, like women, 
were treated far better in the church than they were in the world outside. And women flocked to the church. And then they would tell their husbands about Jesus. And that's how the husbands would convert. The church would, uh, did not abort their babies. They, they took in babies that were found uh, on, on the street that were just thrown away. And they would bring them in. They'd baptize them and raise them as Christians. And they had a sexual ethic, very different than the Roman Empire. And they lived according to what God's word said. And it actually became attractive. And they thought, the Romans thought they were crazy. Christians cared for the sick during, you know, the epidemics. And their communities were communities of learning. They wrote books and they read together and they taught people to read. They planted churches in chaotic cities to care for people. They created an alternate society and the Roman world came into it. And I think that's the vision for cultural transformation that the Bible is giving us. Jesus is bringing his kingdom to the earth, and we are his partners. In this passage, we're the bride. You know, last week, there was the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ, who's the partner with our husband to do the work that he's doing. And so if we want to see cultural transformation, the most important things are that we must let him lead us with his word. We must be people of the Bible. We study it, we read it, we talk about it, and teach it to our children. And then we let him strip us of our flesh. The great sacrifice of the human race must begin with us. And then we let him judge the world as he builds the city of God among the nations. And the great comfort in this mission is that he is leading the way, not us. This is the mission that we're a part of. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we are so grateful to be called the bride of your son, the rider on the white horse who goes out with a sharp sword coming from his mouth. And uh, Lord, we are so grateful to be able to partner in the mission that you have for the nations. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, your Holy Spirit would make our community a place that loves your word, that studies your word. We would be a people of your word and that we would be willing for the knife of your word to fall on our lives, to strip away the flesh that, that is hostile to your ways and that you would fill us with your spirit, Lord. And, and we trust you with the judgment of the world and the, and the kings of the world, that the king of kings will handle all of them. Help us to be faithful in our church, in our city, in our neighborhoods, of every aspect of, of our culture. Um, and we trust you and we follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.